following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. continuation of a sermon series entitled Old Words, New Life, Transformative Teachings from the Old Testament. Old Testament stories are old, but they convey truths that are very relevant for our time and our lives. We'll see that again this morning in the story we heard a few moments ago from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Let's be for a moment in a spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A pastor once preached a sermon that was all about loving your neighbor. He thought that there was nothing in the sermon to which anyone could object. But afterwards, someone came out of the service and said to him, Pastor, you have not met my neighbor. (laughs) Jesus said, that the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor. The first commandment is often easier to do than the second. Today, in many places around the world, people are having a hard time loving their neighbor. For such circumstances, the story we heard this morning about Isaac brings a powerful message. This is a historical story that unfolded almost 4,000 years ago. To rightly understand it, we need to keep in mind some spiritual principles that I discussed in last week's sermon and that are also highlighted in our recently published volume, Rightly Reading the Good Book. I noted last week how some folks want to read the Bible using an approach called verbal inspiration, which holds that God essentially dictated the entire Bible so that each word is to be understood as coming straight from God. This idea, however, is not supported by the Bible itself, and one of the many places it falls apart is our story this morning. The beginning of Genesis 26 says that Isaac went to the city of Gerar, where he encountered King Abimelech of the Philistines. In the story that follows, the original Hebrew uses the specific term Philistine, several times to describe the people of that region. But the Philistines, a people we know well from history and from archaeology, did not immigrate to that part of the world until about 600 years after Isaac. If God dictated each word of the Bible, God made a mistake here, since there were no Philistines around in the days of Isaac. This reality moves skeptics to claim that the Bible is not a holy book, it's full of errors. But there is no problem here at all when we understand how to rightly read the Bible. As I noted last Sunday, when the New Testament says that the Bible is inspired by God, it means that God was communicating God's truth for humanity through the biblical writers. And those writers then expressed that truth using their own words, their own expressions, and their own thought patterns. The writer of this part of the book of Genesis was inspired by God to tell this ancient story about Isaac because it communicates some very important spiritual truths about God and how God wants us to live. 
In recounting the story, he chose to call the non-believers in the land Philistines because the Philistines had occupied that region in more recent centuries, close to his own time, and they were known as a nasty group who constantly picked fights with their neighbors. In Isaac's day, the people who picked fights with him were not literally Philistines, but the term seemed to be a good one to describe them. It is similar to how we continue to use the term Philistine today to describe a crude person who has no appreciation for higher culture or for elevated ideas and values. In discussing this biblical story, I will continue to use the term Philistine to describe the people who were giving Isaac grief. The story begins with Isaac living near the city of Gerar, which we know from archaeological investigations was quite sizable in the days of Isaac. Isaac was leading a semi-nomadic life, sometimes planting crops, sometimes driving about herds of sheep and goats. Under God's blessing, Isaac prospered, and his retinue became so large that King Abimelech of Gerar became fearful of him and asked him to move away. Here is an age-old theme that people will feel threatened by outsiders and want to drive them off. Isaac, not wanting to be a source of trouble, obliged the king and moved away from the city to Awadi, a generally dry river valley where his father Abraham had once lived. Isaac dug out the wells that his father Abraham years before had dug in the valley. The Philistines had stopped up the wells after the death of Abraham, apparently out of spite and a desire to prevent Abraham's descendants from moving back. Isaac's servants found one really good well. But then some herdsmen from the area arrived and said, Hey, that is our water. We thus have the beginning of a classic turf battle. As in every turf battle, each side has some sort of claim and feels offense at the claim of the other. The herdsmen felt that the area was theirs. But Isaac could quite justifiably have said to them, Look, my father Abraham dug out the wells in this area. You obviously were not using any of them. My workers just dug this well out again, so how does it now belong to you? Moreover, not only did Isaac have a very legitimate claim, he also had the power to back it up. If the king of the substantial city of Gerar was afraid of Isaac, this meant that Isaac had a formidable company under him. He could very well have taken it to those shepherds. But Isaac chose the path of generosity. He said to the shepherds, All right, take the well. I'll go somewhere else. Isaac moved on and dug out another well, whereupon the servants, the herdsmen, showed up again. It's our water, they insisted once more. Have you ever, have you ever had this experience where you give someone an inch and they want to take a mile? Isaac might easily have dug in his heels at this point and said, Look, I gave you guys one well, beat it. But after naming the well, 
Sitna, meaning enmity. He had named the first well, Esek, meaning contention. Names that likely continued attached to those wells for centuries and, of course, reflected the conflict that surrounded them in, in this story. Isaac relinquished that well and moved on. Isaac's actions here are especially notable when you realize what a valuable asset a well was in his day. In the Holy Land, you can't count on it raining every other day, as it's been doing here in Ohio. A well was a necessity, but it was also hard to come by. You not only had to dig in the right spot, you had to dig deeply, by hand, through rocky soil. A good well was a treasure. Isaac was willing to give much in order to create peace and goodwill. Isaac went on and dug another well. This time, no one hassled him about it, so he called it Rehoboth, which means there is room, and he credited God with making space for all. The name Rehoboth continues in use today. You see it sometimes on church names, and of course it's the name of a famous beach and boardwalk in Delaware. I wonder how many people who hear the name know the story that is behind it. But the story of Isaac's wells is a good one to know because it has a great deal to say to us. Today we continue to have turf battles of all sorts. We have a massive and brutal turf battle going on in Ukraine. But there are also many less literal turf battles. People are constantly getting into conflicts at work or at school or in their family or in their neighborhoods. Sometimes there are even turf battles in churches. Whenever we are in such a battle, a battle the, the natural human response is to insist on one's own claim and to defend one's own turf. There are, of course, occasions where there are basic values at stake, and we need to stand up for what is right and sometimes fight for what is right. But the story of Isaac's wells presents a much-needed model for how to heal conflicted relationships in a fashion that will make room for all. In the conflict over the wells, Isaac could easily have insisted on his own rights, but instead he chose the path of magnanimity. He put the priority on creating good relations with his neighbors. He gave the Philistines much more than what they deserved, and ultimately, by God's help, he created a new situation in which there was room for all. Isaac thus becomes a prime Old Testament example of the teaching we heard in that New Testament passage from the book of Romans, where Paul wrote, Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Might Paul have had Isaac in the back of his mind when he wrote those words, Paul then went on to quote a very interesting passage from the book of Proverbs, which says, 
If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. That that seems a strange statement. We're we're being encouraged to to be kind to our enemies, and then we're encouraged to dump burning coals on their head. But, But, of course, the phrasing here is figurative. Some commentators suggest that the meaning of this is that your kindness to your foe will bring burning shame upon your enemy. But there's more to it. In Egypt, there was an ancient ritual whereby a person would carry a brazier of burning coals on one's head as a public sign of repentance. It was a symbol of burning away the wrong of the past and making a new start. So the passage is suggesting that showing kindness to people who are being nasty to us may move them finally to contrition so that they recognize and feel sorry for hurts and wrongs done and they begin to live differently. Isn't that exactly what happened in the story of Isaac? Isaac showed amazing generosity to those Philistine herdsmen and they finally relented and gave him space, and there was peace in the land. Significantly, Paul's very next verse is, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The story of Isaac would challenge and inspire us on all those occasions when we find ourselves in turf battles. When people are acting badly and giving us grief, it is difficult to be magnanimous, But Isaac shows what is possible when we open ourselves to the Spirit of God. It is notable that when Isaac names the well Rehoboth, he says, The Lord has made room for us. Isaac acknowledges that it is God who has been guiding his actions, and he recognizes God as the one who has brought things finally to a very positive result. So in the face of conflicts in our lives and in our world, we can look to the Lord in faith, and by God's empowerment, we can arrive finally at Rehoboth, that place of God's peace where there is room and blessing for all. Let us pray. O Lord, we find ourselves today in a world that is full of conflicts, We experience conflicts in our own lives. We see so much conflict in the world at large. Lord, inspire us, like Isaac, to look to you in faith, to open ourselves to how your spirit would work in and through us, that we might be peacemakers, people who help move the world towards Rehoboth, that place where there is room for all. Guide us, Lord, as we are brought by your spirit to that deep peace that we have in you, knowing that we are your children held in your love now and forever, so that, O Lord, we might be witnesses for your grace, your healing reconciliation in our time. We reach out to people who are in times of need around us. We think of persons who are dealing with illness, and pray especially this morning for Morgan Claus, for those dealing with surgeries. Les Bennett and Mike Stiller, praying, Lord, for your healing strength. And remember those who are mourning. We lift up John Enloe and family upon the death of Lois this past week. We pray, Lord, for your healing 
grace, your encouragement to be with them. We give thanks for Lois and her witness in the life of this church and then trust her, Lord, under your everlasting arms. We pray also for the family and friends of Beth Harvey. We, Lord, again, look to you in faith and pray that the comfort of your spirit will be with these families, enabling us, O Lord, to take hold of that peace that we find when we know your eternal promises. We thank you for how your peace-creating spirit is at work in many ways around us. We join with our fellow United Methodists at the Dalton United Methodist Church this morning, and we join with Christians in all different churches all around the world as we celebrate communion today, recognizing our spiritual unity, the way in which even as we have different opinions, different perspectives, different backgrounds, Lord, you bring us all together, all your people gathered together in your wondrous love. Guide us as we seek to be instruments of that love in the world today. Lead us as, as we reach out to persons in many situations far beyond us in need. We do pray for the people who have been affected by Hurricane Ian and pray, Lord, for your healing power and help to be with them. We pray for Ukraine, a land so torn with terrible violence, praying, Lord, that your peace might ultimately take hold in that land. We pray for many places around the world where people are in strife. Guide us instead to catch that vision of Rehoboth. Lead us, O Lord, as we today would live in and share your peace. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.